Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. All right, Sam, are you with me? I am with you on this, Tom Cruise, Lizzie. (laughs) Why do I feel like there's going to be a lot more Tom Cruise movies in our future? Bitch, I watched four Tom Cruise movies this weekend. Four. This is why deep fakes exist. This motherfucker has been in too many movies. He's been in so many movies, but they're kind of always the same movie a little bit. Okay, break it down for me. What's the formula? So basically, I watched all these films, starting with Top Gun, to figure out, like, do I like Tom Cruise? Because we watched Top Gun Maverick for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen the first Top Gun. Neither had you. Yeah. I love Top Gun Maverick. And I was totally charmed by Tom Cruise. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Uh-huh. Have I been wrong? Have I been wrong? Duh. So anyway, I was watching all his, some of his other films to just kind of get my pulse on him, like, incomplete. And I tried to watch, like, stuff from different eras and everything. And what I figured out, the rule of Tom Cruise is that no matter what the film, genre, whatever, his goal in every scene is to get everyone in the room to love him. That's kind of sad. I know. <laughs> like, deeply poetic. Like, he just wants to be loved. Do you think that's written into every character and he's good at playing it? Or do you think he just brings that across? I don't think that was written into Mission Impossible, <laughs> personally. <laughs> However, it is what happened. Okay, cool. Like, male, female, whatever. I think Tom Cruise is kind of a pansexual icon. Okay. And that's not even in my notes. That's just something I'm spitting to you right now. It's just coming from your body. How do you feel about Tom Cruise? I've said it before, uh, if you've listened to our interview with the vampire episode, I do not like Tom Cruise. I actively uh, avoid every single thing that he's been in. We watched Top Gun Maverick to make fun of it for the Oscar season, and I ended up actually enjoying it towards the end, which made me like have a bit of an existential crisis. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm not ready to jump into the deep end. I'm not. You're on the Tom Cruise, like the Titanic. <laughs> I do not personally find him physically attractive, but I think his performance is always really captivating like he he does the like eyebrow acting and like Mm. corner crease acting and like mouth acting like you have to be this close to tom cruise like an inch to see the performance Mm -hmm. Uh, but he also likes to scream a lot so he's got a range yeah yeah uh so basically i think i respect tom cruise now even though he's a scientologist I don't know. I'm so conflicted. He's a horrible person. What Lizzie is trying to say is that she would very easily be <laughs> adopted into the cult of Scientology if Tom Cruise just turned the charm on a That's little bit. not true. I am skeptical. It took you one Top Gun movie to be like, I love Tom Cruise. I take it all back. Every bad word. I think he's a good <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough about Tom Cruise, except for there's more Tom Cruise to come. Yes. We have a Patreon. Yes, we do. We we do have a Patreon. And we almost say nothing about Tom Cruise on that Patreon. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> no. That's my safe space. <laughs> um, if you haven't checked out our Patreon, we welcome you to at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. We're actually running a little special right now. Yes, we are. If you guys are listening, then you probably won't see the amazing hats that we're wearing today. But we've got some new merch. And I got to say, it looks very good. Yeah, it's these really cute green or black hats, say subtextual. The first eight people to sign up for our gayest level tier, which is $15 tier, will get one of these fabulous hats. And also with that tier, every month you get to pick an episode that we do. And actually Top Gun was picked by our gayest level patrons this month. So I salute you. Much love. I had so much fun researching this episode. 
What did you know about Top Gun before you saw it? I had seen Top Gun Maverick before I had seen the original Top Gun, and I had thought it was similar to Fast and the Furious, where there was about seven movies. So it's like, who needs to keep up <laughs> with the backstory? And then Top Gun Maverick was, you know, alluding to a lot of history that I was like, okay, something's going on here. And I think they tied that well into the Top Gun Maverick, the backstory, and watching Top Gun, the original actually kind of disappointed me because Maverick was so good. I don't think you should do it the way that I did it, folks. Do it the other way around. Yeah, watch Top Gun first, then watch Top Gun Maverick, obviously. Mm -hmm. But that being said, having seen the sequel before the prequel, we still really liked it. So what does that mean? It was just a really exciting and well-told story. Mm -hmm. But anyway, maybe it'll. we're not going to talk about Maverick too much because we don't want to give spoilers. If you like action movies, go fucking watch it. Lee Garcia, have you ever seen the original Top Gun? I have not seen the original Top Gun. I have not seen Top Gun Maverick, but I did go to the Barkus Dog Parade for Mardi Gras, and it, the theme was Top Dog. So it was oh all God. Top Gun themed. Uh, if, you're, yes. if you're not in New Orleans, you might not know what Barkus is, but it's a walking parade that happens during Mardi Gras season here, and it's just dogs. Oh. It's just dogs. It's just dogs. <laughs> it's incredible. Nothing but dogs. Yeah. I was joking to Lizzie that, I had, well, I sort of already kind of knew, but it was fuzzy and my suspicions were confirmed by the parade. There was a spoiler, and there are many spoilers in the parade for the first Top Gun movie. Oh, wow. Wait, tell me a spoiler. We're going to talk about it okay. here, so. Uh, the first, it just says R.I.P. Goose. <gasps> and then yep. there's, a, there's a bunch of people with uh, like hats that, like goose hats on, like the animal goose. Mm. And so I was like, okay, goose, I know this and rest in peace. Rest in peace, Goose. Pour one out for Goose. Yeah, I, I think they were safe to assume that this 25-year-old movie yeah. was probably consumed by the public. 37-year-old movie, actually. 37? This movie has been out forever. Holy shit. Yeah, 1986. How old is Tom Cruise? Let's guess. Like, what do you think? How old do you think Tom Cruise is? He's got to be like in his 60s or something. I would something. say 58. I'm going to say 60. Because uh, if this is a 40-year-old movie... Bitch, he is sixty. Exactly. Exactly. So wow. how old is so that? How old does that make him uh, at the release of this movie? I guess twenty-one. Sixty minus thirty-seven. Wow. Twenty-three. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So he was pretty He's, young. Yeah, he looks young. This wasn't his first role, but this was definitely his like blockbuster hit. But yeah, I keep saying enough about Tom Cruise. I remember when I wanted to put this episode up for our patrons to select. You were like, I mean. Google it first and make sure that it's gay enough to do. Mm -hmm. And, bitch, I don't think I've ever had this many Google results for a film when I typed in the film title plus gay into Google. It came up with a million pages. I was like, we're doing it. Yeah. And then in my mind, but this is before I saw the film, in my mind I was like, oh, yeah, like there's that volleyball scene. Like that's in – everyone in the world knows about this volleyball scene even if you hadn't seen it. And I thought it was going to be like that scene and maybe like – one little wink at the camera, and that's it. Holy shit. I was so wrong. This is the most subtextual film we have ever done. Even more than Fast and Furious? M much more than Fast and Furious. Wow, that is hard for me to believe. After seeing the film, I was like, it's on the same level. I would say that they're right at the same point, but you're about to hit me with some research, I'm sure. I'm about to hit you with less research and more. I rewatched it on my laptop with it sitting right in front of me taking notes. And the first time we watched it, I was like, holy shit, they're gay. The second time I watched it, I was like, holy shit, every scene is gay. <laughs> like, 
And what's interesting about this film also was that, like I mentioned, it was released 37 years ago, 1986. This is like the absolute epicenter of the AIDS crisis. So for a movie this homoerotic and this, like, I don't know, kind of encouraging of male-on-male emotional connection is kind of just so interesting and rich. Like, this is also at a time when it was just, like, straight-up illegal to be gay in the military. Mm -hmm. So they're releasing this movie where men are making eyes, hugging, slapping, dying for each other, Mm -hmm. loving. Mm -hmm. And after seeing this film, I kind of came up with a little thesis. Okay. And I wonder if there'll be any other films that fit in this thesis because it really got me thinking about like the military and military movies and how I think they're kind of just like the perfect breeding ground for gay love. See our Cadet Kelly episode, please. (laughs) Exactly. And I was kind of like just ruminating on that and trying to figure out while I was watching it the second time, like why is it that military movies and war movies can sometimes feel so gay? Mm -hmm. I came up with like a structure. Number one, you're isolated from society Like, it feels like when you are in training situations in the military, like, you're kind of off in your own little world with only your military people. And so the regular societal norms are kind of out the window, and you're making your own societal structure. So I think that lends itself to uh, kind of letting things be a little different than if you were, quote unquote, back home. I also think people in the military probably feel really misunderstood by society, especially those who are, like, in actual combat. You are in these really intensely emotional and stressful situations, and I think that cements people together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hard for people back home to understand. Military also feels like a chosen family. Like you're literally put into little squadrons of people. You probably are all living together in the same place. You give each other pet names. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is all about pet names. Oh, yeah. It's a huge focus of the film. Yeah. Goose, Maverick, Hollywood, Viper. And then so you add the stress of like battle situations to all of this. And I think it just makes like this crockpot of gayness where like if you're in stress together and you're alone in this other place together, like I think you're more likely to turn to someone you might not back home. Mm -hmm. And I kind of see that in this film a lot because the relationships between these men is a lot more tender than I really anticipated. Like, yeah, they're doing a lot of crazy masculine stuff but there's also just a lot of conversation about like hey i'm worried about you this or i think you should change your way that because you're going to get yourself killed like there's a lot of dialogue about how to just become better and how to be safe Mm -hmm. particularly goose and maverick are always concerned about each other's not only safety but like emotional security yeah and i just want to be clear and make this point. Um, It was said when we covered High School Musical, it was said when we covered Fast and the Furious, there were some people that were saying, oh, a guy likes to sing and dance. Of course he's gay. And when we covered Fast and the Furious, oh, two men can't be friends. They have to be gay. We're not saying that. We're not saying everybody goes to the military to lead this gay life. We're saying that If you've seen this film, you know exactly what we're talking about. If you (laughs) haven't seen this film recently, please revisit it because it is like oozing with this level of intimacy that is more heightened than just any man going to war or any man performing in a musical. We're not making blanket statements that people who choose to do these things are innately gay. It's not a static for all people. But if you take these little snapshots, there's a lot to learn about why certain individuals would be drawn to certain things. Absolutely. And I'm going to present you with enough fucking evidence. You 
will not be able to refute it. It is not only in how the filmmakers present the story, but how the characters themselves interact and how the cast chooses for the characters to interact. It's multiple levels of subtext Mm -hmm. all piling on, and it is, like, viciously homoerotic. Let's go. I'm so fucking ready. Uh, So before we jump into the plot, I just want to talk a little bit about the creator, specifically the director. I did my little, like, always got a deep dive into the producers and shit to find out if anyone's gay. No surprise. (laughs) No one I could find was actually at least openly gay. If you subscribe to IMDb Pro, you'll see exactly who in the cast and crew is gay. Just flags it for you. No way. (laughs) No, of course not. I I was saying I'm not gullible. I'm like, Tom Cruise, where did I get my Scientology library card? I'm here for my first day of Scientology, please. (laughs) Oh, okay. But yeah, Tony Scott is the director. He's actually Ridley Scott's younger brother. The other Scott. He's the other Scott. Um, So he's a Brit. He his background was in directing like these really flashy masculine commercials for his brother's production company. What like Gillette? Like cars and like motorcycles and like when it's time to shave your balls, (laughs) you got to do it with a knife. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff like that. Exactly. (laughs) So actually, he got the gig for Top Gun because he had done a commercial of a car racing a fighter jet, like a Saab commercial or something. And they were like, perfect, that's enough for you to handle this story. But he did some other stuff too, like Beverly Hills Cop 2, Man on Fire with Denzel. I love Man on Fire. Man on Fire is really good. I love that movie. He also did a film that I've been meaning to do for the podcast called The Hunger. Um, It was the film he did right before Susan Sarandon, David Bowie. Exactly. Didn't mean to cut you off. Yes, I really like that film. Bisexual icons, vampires. That film is coming like, that's an inevitability for me. Need I say more? Need I say more? Did he direct Maverick? Tony Scott did not direct Maverick because, unfortunately, he committed suicide like 20 years or so after the film was released. Um, it, Shit. I think he was – his family didn't really know exactly why. It did come out that he was, like, battling with cancer, so maybe that was it. Um, but no one really knows. But um, Top Gun Maverick is actually dedicated to Tony Scott. So that's oh, really sweet. That's nice. Yeah. So – in interviews with, like, producers and stuff, Tony Scott was never asked this question because he passed before this was, like, something the media could talk about. But lots of the producers and writers have been asked in various interviews, like, so did y'all mean Top Gun to be so gay? And, of course, they were like, uh, no, like, I guess it's cool that people see that subtext, but, you know, we didn't plan it to be like that. Whereas Tony Scott himself uh, interestingly said this quote about his work that I thought was pretty interesting and not necessarily pointing to the queerness, but maybe. So Tony Scott said, if you look at my body of work, there's always a dark side to my characters. They've always got a skeleton in the closet. They've always got a subtext. So I think he does intentionally put something behind these characters. I mean, Man on Fire is a great example. I don't really know the subtext there, but it is more than just like a man protect girl movie like it has like this relationship between the two characters that's really interesting yeah they it's similar to the joaquin phoenix um i was never really there where this man who is you know well-versed in violent acts steps in to care for a young girl so i can definitely see that in man on fire it's below the surface and they don't jump into that too much so I can see that with this movie, too. And I think that's a good lesson for all storytellers. These aren't like one-dimensional creatures. And 
if you want to give them backstories, you don't necessarily need to tell us about it. That should just be a motivation that the actors have to understand their character better. Exactly. And then anyone who's watching it can like kind of mirror themselves in that character. So gay people like us can watch it and be like, those men love each other. Mm -hmm. And what I'm getting from this is that they have like this really loving relationship. And that's a better story than guys in the military fly planes and sometimes they die. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there has to be something more to make it a long lasting legacy film, I believe. And also another interesting fact I found out about how Tony Scott intended to direct the film. He actually pulled a lot of visual references from a gay photographer named Bruce Weber. Um, Bruce Weber's still alive now. I'm sure you've seen some of his photos, um, but it's mostly men, mostly black and whites, and mostly like super hot, half-naked people. I can give you more information on Bruce Weber after you show me the photos. Okay. So here's a, just a selection of photos from uh, the book that inspired Tony Scott. And you can... I think you can see like where some of the visuals came from. Yeah, those photographs are super homoerotic. You can get a feel for Bruce Weber if you don't know his name. He does a lot. He did a lot of the photography for Abercrombie and Fitch. I just watched the documentary White Hot Abercrombie and Fitch Story, which is a great documentary if you were alive during the height of Abercrombie and Fitch and <laughs> were like, "What the fuck is going on?" But. Uh, a point in the documentary, they pause and talk about Bruce Weber because a lot of the male models who did pose for Abercrombie and Fitch were solicited by Bruce Weber. Mm. And it was known amongst all of his models that if he takes a liking to you, you have to go back to his cabin and do what and do what he wants you to do or you won't be shot again. Ugh, I was hoping that wasn't the case with this guy. It's absolutely the case. Like, why does it always have to be these high profile gay creators that just fuck it up? For so many people, like just just be cool, just be consensual. It just never has to do with being gay. It always has yeah. to do with having power. I know. Then it like makes everything weird for everyone else. It's so unfortunate. So but I can definitely see the the Top Gun in all of those photos. It's like man as object, mm -hmm, and I definitely. think once you get an hour and a half of that, I think Tony Scott was in a place that's like let's dig a little bit deeper behind that that visual, and I think he did a really good job. Yeah, he puts substance behind, I mean, there's full scenes where there's like five or six military dudes in just towels or just whitey tidies, like kind of lounging around a locker room. But they're having like pretty meaningful conversations, I guess. So it's not like the Jeepers Creepers thing where people are just shirtless for no reason. Like, I think it is part of the, you know, the forced masculinity and the show offness that I think comes with being a young man in the military. Um, but in this case, it also allows them to kind of like, I don't know, gaze at each other a little bit. Mm -hmm. And we love a little gay gaze. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right. Uh, these photos in particular and how it translates into the film is a little like objectifying. Yeah. The photos read to me more like a still life than like portraits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very striking. Um, so yeah, with that, with Tony Scott in mind, with homoerotic volleyball in mind, let's get into the plot. <laughs> I'm going to send you up against the best. Yes, sir. You two characters are going to Top Gun. I feel the need. The need for speed. I'm an instructor at this school. I see 20 new hot shots every eight weeks. I don't like you because you're unsafe. That's right. I am dangerous. More like bottom gun, am I right? <laughs> 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 I was trying to ascertain if... 
Maverick, Tom Cruise's character, was a bottom or a top, and I truly don't know. No, he's a... Switch? Verse, for sure. For sure. Like, whatever the situation calls for. <laughs> he's like a jack-of-all-trades. Oh, fucking K. We start our story up in the fucking air. We meet Navy pilot Maverick, played by Tom Cruise, and his co-pilot Goose, played by someone else, sorry, I didn't look it up, in the air, flying out a mission with another pilot named Cougar. They are approached by two enemy jets in planes called MiGs, which I guess are super duper fast. And Maverick rescues Cougar. And we kind of see that though he is like a really brilliant pilot, he's really cocky and takes a lot of risks. And that gets him into trouble. I know we're going to dive deep into this, but all of these pilots are so dorky and they've been (laughs) enabled so thoroughly by the military to be like, oh, yeah, I'm the most important guy in the room. I love fucking planes. I want to go to bed with a plane and hug a plane. And it's like, okay, it's cute that you like planes. But as far as the military goes, if I was flying around like a $30 million aircraft, the last person I would want to be driving this would be motherfucking Maverick. Yeah. It's not a tricycle. You can't go and do your own thing, my guy. He is a tax liability. And I actually want to talk about that because the whole time I was watching Top Gun Maverick and double the whole time I was watching Top Gun, I was like, this is literally our tax dollars just Mm -hmm. being sucked out of the air because this is real. There are planes that fly around and land on carrier ships and like do all this crazy stunt work. And I was able to find some numbers to like go with like how fucking expensive this shit is Mm -hmm. so if you remember like in this whole sequence of them flying around there's also an opening montage it's basically sunset of like an aircraft carrier ship doing their normal operations there's like planes landing and men pulling levers and like ropes and hand signals and shit like that so to get those shots tony scott and the crew were just literally on a carrier craft running normal operations But anytime they had to fly a plane or do anything outside of normal operations, Paramount, the studio, was paying as much as $7,800 per hour, which is close to $20,000 an hour in today's money. Wow. And there's even a story. I don't know how true this is, but it's kind of like one of the lore of Top Gun. There was apparently a moment where um, Tony Scott wanted to get the jet landing, like, with the sunset coming from behind. But the ship's captain, like, turned the ship too early, so it was going to be more sun head-on, which Tony Scott thought looked horrible. And so he told the ship captain, like, hey, can you, like, just turn the ship back around? And the guy was like, that would cost (laughs) $10,000. And Tony Scott literally just wrote him a check and was like, just give me five minutes. And (laughs) he got the shot. Can you turn this thing around? It's a military aircraft carrier. (laughs) It is not an Uber. (laughs) Oh, shit. That was my turn. And like the the prices that you're listing are exorbitant for what is like a five minute scene. But also that's the price they had to pay to shoot it. Not the price they had to pay to fuel and man these aircrafts and fly them up into the air and burn all the gas and shit, and then bring them back down. Like, holy shit, America is like a fascist police state. I'm sorry. No, it's not where I'm supposed to go. But like, God, it's so expensive. Dude, I almost had a absolute conniption. I was like, maybe I just won't pay my taxes this year. That's like the toilet paper on one of these carriers for like a day is what I pay in taxes, apparently. Oh, a thousand percent. It's like one of the water bottles in the back office <laughs> is what my taxes like amount to. I am gay for a lot less. That's all I'm saying. Being gay is free. <laughs> it takes no money. You don't have to do this. <laughs> all right. So anyway, 
Maverick and Goose survive this mission, and their commanding officer begrudgingly sends them to Top Gun, which is this prestigious naval fighter school where only the best of the best and the manliest of the manliest go to train. And they're like, yay, let's go. We're going to shack up together. So yeah, Mav and Goose head off to Fighter Town, USA in California to Top Gun. And the first night they get there, they go out to a Navy bar to meet with the rest of their cohort. And here we meet Flaming Twink Iceman, played by Val Kilmer. He is hot to me in the way that Patrick Swayze is hot, where it's like, I don't even need to register it because it's so unattainable. Yeah. You know? Untouchable. They're like, did you ever read like Greek mythology and like Athena would get so mad that this like human is pretty and you'd be like, how pretty is she? Like that's Val Kilmer in this movie. (laughs) Val Kilmer would be struck dead by Zeus. (laughs) Exactly. Be sent to fucking Hades. Yeah. All right. I want to show you the scene. This is the first of like literally 20 scenes I'm going to show you. So just bear with me. I'm going to show you this whole film. But I want to show you the scene where Iceman and Maverick meet in the bar. Meet cute. Meet cute. How's it going good, Tom? This is Pete Mitchell. Tom Kazanski. Congratulations on Top Gun. Thank you. Sorry to hear about Cougar. He and I were like brothers in flight school. He was a good man. Still is a good man. Yeah, that's what I meant. Thought so. So you need any help? With what? You figured it out yet? What's that? Who's the best pilot? No, I think I can figure that one out on my own. I heard that about you. You like to work alone. I'll see you later. You can count on it. Just fuck already. Jesus fucking Christ. Their faces are centimeters, mere centimeters away from each other. Val Kilmer is doing the sexy triangle. Left eye, right eye, mouth. mouth. Val Kilmer wants to fuck Maverick. I have seen grinder messages longer than this. (laughs) He's like, so who's on top? You figured it out yet? (laughs) Bitch. It's too much. Okay, okay, it's not only that. It's how it's fucking framed, like you were saying earlier. And I want you to remember how the framing of this scene went. So basically, it's four guys talking at the bar whenever... Iceman and Maverick start having their little back and forth. It's kind of in like a hefty medium, like chest high to top of head. That's where comedy lives. That's where comedy lives. Dialogue. Normal drama. And that's how most of the film is shot, including every scene with the hetero love interest, Mm -hmm. just pointing out. But then all of a sudden we get this like super close up that's like chin to eyebrow. And the thing about this shot is that it's not like single shots. We still see Val Kilmer on the edge of Tom Cruise's frame and vice versa. So we can see how physically close they are to each other. Mm -hmm. That is such an interesting choice to make. That is the choice romantic comedies choose before they kiss. Exactly. You get spatial awareness. You get the eye-eye lip. uh, And it's like their lips are about to touch. And this is the first time they've spoke. Like, it gets (laughs) much worse. This is the first they've ever spoken. They've never spoken to each other before. Anyway, so right after this, across the bar, Mav sees Charlotte Blackwood, a.k.a. Charlie, a.k.a. the hetero love interest. Ah, yes, the Mia Toretto to his Dom Toretto. That is a Fast and the Furious reference. Please go listen to that episode. The stand-in. Yes, the proxy. The proxy for all of his pent-up Val Kilmer emotions. We get it. He's fucking chiseled, okay? Mm -hmm. So anyway, he sees this woman and is like, okay, time to woo a female. With karaoke. Oh, let's go. All right. The 
bet is $20. $20. All right. You have to have carnal knowledge of a lady this time. <laughs> On the premises. On the premises. I don't know. It just, uh, just doesn't seem fair. For you, I mean. But, uh, she's lost that loving feeling. She's like, no, she hasn't. Yes, she has. She has not lost that look. Goose, she's lost it, Matt. Come on. I hate it when she does that. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, baby. But baby. knowledge of a woman this time because what was it last time it's not subtextual at this point <laughs> it's canon <laughs> okay none of that gay shit maverick time to have sex with a woman if you want your money this time mav do the hard thing woo a woman <laughs> okay and then think about this okay well first of all the way he chooses to woo this woman karaoke that's gay Yes, it's gay or just uh, a bad attempt at wooing a woman. Either way, you're not going to get much success out of this. Exactly. Second of all, Charlie is a lesbian. Charlie, if you guys are very well versed in the L word, does make a character appearance. She has like a four episode arc in the L word. If you are familiar with season five, where the character of Tasha is being investigated by the military under Don't Ask, mm. Don't Tell, she is the lawyer who is prosecuting her. Mm. And she comes out as queer. That is not a spoiler. If you haven't seen the L word at this point, <laughs> I am very surprised. Um, but it's hard to clock. I was just recently watching that season. That's how I noticed her. But yeah, this just screams beard to me. It's such a beard. Like, Charlie has short hair. She's wearing, like, the lesbian boater look, mm -hmm. I guess, of the 80s. And we see every other woman in this bar is wearing, like, floral Hawaiian dresses and has long hair and is, like, showing their tits off. Charlie's wearing a button-up. She's doing, like, the Ralph Lauren yes, exactly. polo sort of situation. And granted, if I didn't know that she was in the L word, I would not clock her as a lesbian. But that's just a feeling I yeah. have. The, the actress Kelly McGillis is gay. No way. Wait, you didn't know that? No, I thought she was just in the L word. <laughs> you can't just be in the L word. Oh Kelly McGillis God. is fucking gay. This goes to show all of the minor characters in the L word are gay. Holland Taylor mm. doesn't. Oh, yeah. As Peabody plays straight lesbian. This character, holy shit. Yeah. Dude, it's real. Wow. And then lastly, the song he chooses is really interesting. So you've lost that love and feeling by the Righteous Brothers, right? You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. And there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, you've lost that love and feeling. He chose to sing a song about a person not feeling love for another person to the person he's trying to woo that he doesn't feel love for because they're both gay. That's the shit I'm talking about. And yes. I want you to know, I read hundred. I read so many articles about this fucking movie being gay. Most of the shit I'm talking about was never clocked. Wow. People don't even be looking past the volleyball scene. What is up? That's bad journalism. Come on. 
put on the investigatory glasses <laughs> and we're not even close to the middle of the film. No. Every single scene, as soon as he gets to Top Gun, is just like gay looks, <laughs> gay dialogue. <laughs> gay insane. appearance. It's so insane. Gay cinematography, gay framing. Okay, but if we talk about the way that he is attempting to woo Charlotte, it's sexual harassment. Oh, yeah. He follows her into the woman's room. She says, no, th- oh, it's nice to meet you. I'm going to go do what I have to do. And then she gets up to use the bathroom. He follows her in there. And she shuts him down again. And shuts him down again. And he still persists. But what's interesting is, so the next scene, we see Charlotte again when we realize that she's a fucking Top Gun instructor. She has a PhD. She's a professor. A mathematician. She's a physicist. She has the highest security clearance above all of these pilots. And she gets up there to teach them a lesson. And fucking Maverick takes it upon himself to say, actually, I think you don't know what you're talking about. And we're supposed to believe as an audience this is impressive to her. This whole film is written from the perspective of the male ego. Definitely. Every time Maverick is not in a scene, everyone can only talk about how awesome Maverick is. Yeah. Did you see that wild card? Yeah, I would love to kick him out, but he's too good at flying. Wow, that's the best flying I've ever seen. You're reckless. These are conversations that are happening in the military. No, if he disobeyed orders, he is getting dishonorably discharged. Yeah. There's not a bunch of men in a back room smoking cigars, wanking their dick about how cool he is. Yeah, no way. This is a total delusion. This is delusion. And that this is the first scene where I was like, okay, this is just ridiculous. That's Charlotte, the fucking doctor, yeah. or has a doctorate level in all of this shit. It's like, that's so impressive that this... 19-year-old thinks he knows more than me. I should shag him. And it's funny because in at that moment, they both do an about face. Like you're saying, she all of a sudden loves that he like puts her down and plays coy. And for having pursued her so heavily at the bar, he now keeps her at arm's distance and plays cold shoulder with her and makes her chase after him, which is so strange. Like, why would that ever be the dynamic? It is male fantasy. It is fan fiction. It is not rooted in reality. Well, if you want to see something that is rooted in reality, so after Charlie and Mav have this like little exchange in the hallway where Maverick's like, oh, well, you'll just have to read my case file, won't you? Guess who's waiting for him in the hallway? Who? Iceman. Maverick. I'm curious. Who was covering Cougar while you were showboating with this MiG? Cougar was doing just fine. Uh-huh. All right, so in the last scene we just watched, Tom Cruise is hustling up a flight of stairs. And who's at the top but our baby boy, Iceman? Obviously waiting for him. He's twirling his little, you know, his jewelry, looking so cute and casual. And as Maverick comes around the corner, he goes, so um, I have something to ask you. The girls are jealous. He is peanut butter and jealous. He's like, um, so anyways, um, so who was flying the MiG um, anyways while, um, and why were you near him? Did you look him in the eye? Was he hot? Anyways, was he hotter than me? Uh, anyways, I'll see you later. <laughs> Dude, it's interesting that Iceman always brings up Cougar, who's the guy at the very beginning that Mav was flying with who ended up quitting the Navy because he couldn't stand the pressure. Um, I'm like, is Cougar like one of your boyfriends? And you're like, Wait, you knew my boyfriend? Y'all are like boyfriends too? (laughs) It is definitely giving that. They're saying saying so little and they're trying to get this message across to each other. And it's like, 
just be friends or kiss. Either one of those needs to happen very soon. Yeah, because he's never, he's not like antagonistic enough to Maverick that it feels like a rivalry Mm -hmm. because he gives him lots of advice and even compliments at a certain point and later like comforts him when something bad happens. No spoilers yet. So it's not just like textbook, like be mean to him because you don't like him. Like Mm -hmm. it's nuanced. He's, he's at, every time they speak, it's a different angle of how Iceman's get like poking at Maverick. Yeah, the the pressure that he feels from his regiment in the Navy is all ex- auxiliary. It's placed on Goose. It's placed on Vipers, Rio. It's placed on all of these other characters. But never once does Val Kilmer, like, serve shit up to Maverick. Yeah. Uh, I would read this fan fiction, dude. Mm-hmm. They're kissing. Oh, Don't for sure. Worry. Okay, so... The Top Gun cohorts, including Mav, Iceman, the whole lot, fly their first flight exercise. Basically, they're trying to, like, tag their instructor before he tags them. I will say, like, I don't mean to bring up Top Gun Maverick, but in these scenes in the original Top Gun, I was so confused about who was in what plane, where Mm -hmm. was the plane, what was the action. I think that's one thing they improved, uh, like, 20 times over in Maverick. Yeah, I was telling Lizzie, this film sunk a lot of stake in dialogue and, you know, the action scenes inside of the pit of the plane were kind of throwaways. It was hard to realize where they were. And the inverse is true of Top Gun Maverick, Mm. where the dialogue was fan service. But when they were in the planes, that's when you got to see most of the action that you really gave a shit about. Oh, yeah, that's true. It is such a wholly different film, even though a lot of the characters carry over. Anyway. That's why it got adapted screenplay nom. Yep. So anyway, Maverick and Goose in this mission end up being successful, but because Mav uses a very risky maneuver and goes below the hard deck, he also buzzes the tower, which means going like shoom right by the tower and scaring everyone inside. They end up getting in trouble. But the only other flight pair that manages to be successful as well is, of course, Iceman and his work wife. And they did it without endangering anyone or giving the bird to anyone. I don't understand how this is even a contest. I'm so glad you mentioned the word danger, because I have another scene to show you. So this is Maverick and the boys in the locker room after the exercise is over, and Iceman has something to say. We won. All right. All right. They won too, man. That's not what I heard. Well, we did. We got gesture. No, no. Below the hard deck does not count. Hard deck my ass. We nailed that son of a bitch. You guys really are cowboys. What's your problem, Kazansky? You're everyone's problem. That's because every time you go up in the air, you're unsafe. I don't like you because you're dangerous. That's right. Ice, man. I am dangerous. All right, so we see Iceman and Maverick and Goose and Iceman sidekick, who I can't remember. Slider? Okay. (laughs) And they're all in the locker room bragging about their exploits. And Slider informs Goose and Maverick that their win doesn't count because they've gone below the hard deck. And Iceman says, I don't like you because you're dangerous. And they exchange this look. And Maverick goes, yeah, I am dangerous. And Iceman goes, he he does this little. (laughs) And with a smile on his face, he like bites at him. They are smiling. And then Maverick beams right at him. And then they're interrupted. And they're in that fucking close-up that they're invading each other's frames, like, chin to eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Like, what What would cause someone to do this? I just, I, I don't know. I've don't never know, done that 
before a day in my goddamn life, <laughs> let alone to my coworker. Are you kidding my me? My frenemy? No. No, that is – that's a lot. So, yeah, in the very next scene, like I mentioned, because Maverick is, like, kind of a childish guy still, like, getting his shit together, they get in trouble for going below the hard deck and for buzzing the tower. And later that night, Maverick's alone in his room and Goose comes to have a heart-to-heart. Look, man, I know it's tough for you. I wouldn't let you in the academy because you're Duke Mitchell's kid. You have to live with that reputation. It's like every time we go up there, it's like you're flying against a ghost. Makes me nervous. You're the only family I've got. I'm not gonna let you down, I promise. Okay, so in that scene, Goose comes in to serve some hard truth to Maverick. I think this is the only way Maverick can hear this because he keeps getting reprimanded by the higher-ups and nothing's, like, getting through. But Goose is someone he trusts, and Goose says, you know, come on, man, I just want to (laughs) graduate. And I think this is the difference between, you know, can guys be friends? Can guys go to the military? Both of those things can be true without them being gay. There is a astute difference between how Maverick communicates with Goose and how Maverick communicates with Iceman. It's night and day. Mm-hmm. Goose is giving chosen family. Iceman is giving grinder hookup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, could not have said that better myself. Yeah, it's like they they do love each other, whether that's platonic or not. We don't know their history, but we can feel that they know each other more than anyone else, quite possibly more than Goose's wife and kid know him. Mm-hmm. And they literally are each other's chosen family. And, you know, even if this isn't gay, which it is, it's still nice to, like, see men have that connection, that emotional connection. And for this to be, like, this little soft center of this really, like, masculine military movie is just so nice. Like, that's such an understated scene. They're being very open with each other. They give each other, like, a little slap on the shoulder, you know, and a smile, like they can be honest with each other about their feelings. Like, it's nice to see that. Mm -hmm. Also, daddy issues. We promised y'all 2023 was going to be the year of the daddy issues. 2022 was the year of the mommy. (laughs) 2023 (laughs) is the year of the daddy. A fucking man. (laughs) Uh, The next day, Charlie finally asks Mav over to her house for dinner, um, but On the way to dinner, he decides to stop and play a little volleyball with his boys. Can't say I blame him. So we have to watch this iconic volleyball scene. It's like all anyone can ever talk about. Oh, yeah. This scene gives Bruce Weber Mm -hmm. more than any of the other scenes in which the the men are objects. Yeah. All right, Lizzie just showed me the volleyball scene. We've got these guys. They're tan. They're oiled. They are slanging volleyballs like they just don't care. And it's homoerotic. But I've got to say to you, it is the least gay part of this film I've seen so far. (laughs) Okay, so you read my notes. That's literally what I have written in my notes. I'm like, this is the scene y'all thought was gay? This is actually the least gay scene. Media literacy. It's called critical (laughs) thinking. This is just overt guys being shirtless around each other. This is not a gay scene. Absolutely not. It's just all good, clean fun. They just happen to be shirtless. 
This is the idea like when guys are like, oh, you're going to have a slumber party with your girlfriends? Are you going to be in your panties hitting each other <laughs> with like pillows and stuff? It's like all of those things could happen and it would not be we're not having sex with each other, yeah. you know? Being scandally clad near people is not a sex scene make. Thank you. Neither does Moonlight in 80s rock music, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so anyway, that scene's not gay. And neither is this next scene. Um, so Mav shows up late to dinner at Charlie's house. And I just want to note some differences between how this is shot and how everything else between Maverick and Iceman or Maverick and Goose is shot. Okay, so in this scene, it's Maverick and Charlie sitting across the table from each other, just sharing a meal, sharing a, sharing a conversation, which stays pretty surface level. Mm -hmm. They're talking about work. Um, but we're supposed to believe it's a romantic moment because they're like drinking wine and there's romantic lighting and flowers and shit. But what I think it's interesting about this scene and how it is filmed, when we're looking at Charlie, it's like a good regular medium shot of her a little bit of Tom Cruise dirtying the edge of frame. But when we shoot back to Maverick, it's just him in a close-up. And maybe I'm looking into this too much, but in my mind, like, we're never presented with an image of them together on screen. So we can kind of, like, fill in the gaps and, like, keep this separation between Mav and this female love interest that we believe they're supposed to have. Whereas the moment he meets and talks to any guy, they're microscopically close to each other in the same frame. I just think that's interesting. Even to further your point, even when Charlie and Maverick have a love scene, there are complete darkness. Yes. Silhouettes. You can't see their eyes. You have no idea what they're feeling. Nothing. And to reference your framing note, you see Maverick isolated in a the frame. There's no Charlie. When you see Charlie, you see Maverick a little bit. And that's to kind of give the audience like, oh, Charlie's letting Maverick in. Maverick's not letting Charlie in at all. Exactly. 100%. He keeps her at arm's distance. Even while they're having sex, it feels very like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no imagination. It's like too textbook. You know what I mean? You see him have more fun flying a plane and fucking playing volleyball than you do him having sex with a woman he's supposed to be interested in. 100%. So the next day in class, Charlie is analyzing Maverick's flight exercise in front of everyone, and she says to the class that what he did was really risky and is basically an example of what not to do. And Maverick is like a two-year-old. Um, he literally runs out of class, gets on his motorcycle, and ignores her when she comes after him to tell him something. And says, la, 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 I can't hear you. He literally says, I can't hear you. Revs his motorcycle and runs away. And she, in some insane turn of events, chases him down in her car, almost gets in a car accident, corners him, tells him she's fallen for him, and then they have sex. When I said this was written for the male ego, come on now. No woman would ever tolerate someone being like, la, 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 I can't hear you. I can't handle criticism. I'm getting on my big, loud motorcycle and running away. And she's like, I have to have that man. <laughs> I have to chase him at 80 miles an hour through the city. No, this is insane. Anyway, I'm not even going to dream of showing you this sex scene, but it is like... I covered my eyes when I watched this like I was a seven-year-old. It grossed me out to no gross. end. It was gross in the way like watching your parents make out is gross. No offense to parents, but there was just no chemistry. It, it just 
feels very performative. Like, mm-hmm. the moonlight, and there's roses on the end table, and there's, like, a breeze going through the room, and he, like, lays her down, and they, like, have missionary sex or whatever. It, It's not pretty. You don't see their faces. You don't hear anything that they say or anything to each other. Mm-hmm. There's no lingering looks, which is, like, everything Iceman and Maverick say to each other involves a lingering look mm-hmm. and a gaze. Mm-hmm. None of that. Mm-mm uncomfortable i could not stand this scene i really like wanted to run away it was weird so the next day during another flight exercise maverick is on his best behavior and goose and he and iceman and some of the other guys are all running kind of like a group flight mission together and maverick and goose's plane ends up getting caught in jet wash which i guess is like blowout from another plane And they start spinning out of control. Maverick loses control of it. And they have to eject out of the jet. But when that happens, something goes wrong. Goose ends up hitting, like, the canopy of the plane. And they parachute down into the water. Maverick swims over to Goose. But Goose is dead. Yeah. So sad. From the way it looked, probably Goose's neck snapped. Yeah, I think that's the – I think that's the idea. Brutal. And then there's also this brutal shot where, like, Maverick's all caught up in, like, his parachute and Goose's parachute. And he, like, fishes him out of the water and, like, clutches his body to his and just, like, cries. Mm -hmm. And, like, the Coast Guard comes and it's like, look, man, you got to let him go. You got to let him go. He's gone. Mm -hmm. It's really fucking sad. It is really, really sad. And this is, like, the halfway point. I don't have too much to say, but how... the loss of Goose affects Maverick is where we see the turn in his character, which is honestly not something I anticipated to see in this character was like an arc. Um, And yeah, it's motivated by a huge loss, but it was kind of like a nice commentary on grief in the military and loss in the military because no one's able to comfort Maverick. His commanding officers are like, this happens all the time. None, uh, None of his cohort members seem to really understand that he needs more time to get over this. His commanding officers are just saying, like, keep putting him up in the air. He'll get over it. And even Charlotte, how Charlotte responds to Maverick's loss over Goose is honestly really upsetting. She tries to force Maverick in some sort of, like, feel it now or get over it Yeah, sort of scenario, which makes – he was avoiding her before this even happened. And at this point, every time she showed up on screen, I was like, uh, I'm – I'm anxious because I don't want to have a conversation with her. But we see like a dialogue, which I think is as close as Maverick gets to feeling anything and being given the space to feel about Goose's Goose's loss of life where Meg Ryan, Goose's wife, basically like holds Maverick and says like he loved you. And even then Maverick can't say anything. No, he still locks up. And Iceman at a certain point comes to him and says something really sweet and he just says like i'm sorry everyone loved goose and i'm sorry he doesn't try to say you should get over it he doesn't tell him how he should feel what he needs to do because maverick is considering quitting the navy at this point Hmm. and when charlotte hears that she fucking like chases him down like corners him at a bar and says like wait you're not gonna say goodbye like oh you're just quitting it seems like you've got that maneuver down these are like all things she actually says to him and he turns to her and says, you know, thank you for trying to help. But if I wanted your help, I would have asked for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is part of Maverick's growth is that he is like 
taking the initiative to look inside himself, choose how he wants to move forward with his own life, like fuck with his officers and his cohort and even what Goose's wife expects him to do. He's like, what do I need to do? And he also puts Charlotte in her place and is like, I didn't come to you for a reason. If I wanted your comfort, I would have come to you. I think it also becomes very real for Maverick in the sense that Iceman is saying, I don't like you, not because I don't like you. You're dangerous. Imagine if my fucking left-hand man got murdered because you did something stupid and I got caught in some jet wash and he died for no reason. Mm -hmm. I think Maverick is grappling with, like, my ego is big and this death wasn't my fault. But I could turn a certain way and a lot of people could fucking die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that part of it, that he's kind of like zooming out and seeing himself in the scope of his role in the military that he's agreed to, saying like, I'm not, I'm no longer in the military for me. I'm in it for my team. And we definitely do see that because ultimately Mav decides to finish Top Gun, graduate, and he, Iceman, and a few of the other guys are deployed on their like first official mission. And Maverick is kind of like the backup guy who just kind of waits in the plane on the air carrier ship to be deployed if something goes wrong. Spoiler alert, something goes wrong. Spoiling? Something goes wrong. But he shows up for them, communicates with Iceman, doesn't do anything risky or rash, but like uses his skills as a good pilot to save everyone's life there. And when they all get back to the carrier plane, there's this great moment where they all celebrate together. And I want to show you that scene real quick. Please and thank you. You guys, how are you? You! You are still dangerous. You can be my wingman anytime. Bullshit. You can be mine. I've seen a lot of porn, Lizzie. Uh, yes, I'm happy to describe this scene. Uh, so Maverick gets out of his jet. He is welcomed by a chorus of other soldiers or Navyman pilots who are just <laughs> happy to see him. And they're saying, yay, go Maverick. And Iceman is hanging back and says, you're still dangerous. You can be my wingman anytime. Oh. Bullshit. You can be mine. Stop. S- literally stop. This is when they have sex. If Maverick and Charlie had an ounce of this, we would not be covering this episode. No, absolutely not. That relationship failed so magnificently. In fact, okay, I'm going to present with you my final reach of this film. And when I saw this, I was like, I was like, is everyone else blind watching this movie? So final scene of the fucking film. He's having a drink at a bar reading a book, minding his own damn business. You've lost that love and feeling, starts playing on the jukebox. I start looking over my shoulder for Charlotte because I'm like, if she shows up, I'm going to start running. He starts looking around like he's seen a ghost and he feels like a phantom presence behind him. And boo, it's fucking Charlie. She's there. Who? She's supposed to be in, a, in Washington at a job. I guess she quit that job. They share the final moment of the film. I'm going to show you that. That's so fun. Final shot of the movie, Mav and Charlie approach each other. They meet in the middle of frame, still in a medium shot, 
Nothing more intimate than that. And there's still the shadow on their faces. The light is coming from behind them. Still backlit. They go to kiss, but they do not. We roll to credits. Who's the first face we see in the credits? But Goose. Like, you know what I mean? They're like, okay, imagine they're about to kiss. Okay, now imagine it's Goose. (laughs) And then followed immediately by Iceman. Dude. I can't believe that straight people would do this on accident. It's almost hard to believe. It's almost incredible. Like, was old boy Tony actually gay? Or were Val and Tom Cruise actually that into each other? Or am I insane? And this is all made up in my little head. It's not. I'm here with you. (laughs) I'm amazed. I am literally gobsmacked. So you see what I'm saying? It's gayer than Fast and the Furious. If you were to put those two side by side. I would say they're still on par. I was hoping you would say, and the writer was gay. And then I'd be like, okay, it's definitely intentionally gayer. I think they both like to pretend they accidentally stepped in this gay puddle that we're living in. But it's astounding. I couldn't try this hard to make something straight. You know what I mean? Like if we're talking about inverse, like these filmmakers were like, let's make the straightest Navy pilot movie ever and made something. (laughs) Which is what they set out to do. Lizzie showed me every single scene of this movie and it all seemed like a clip from a gay porno. Yeah. Like we're about to shoot to the sex part. I am floored. Plus emotional chemistry and caring. It's everything. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank the Academy. (laughs) All right, let's get into the reception. All right. So I did wonder and try to do some research into like, like, did gay men and women go to this film in the 80s and like watch it? Like, did they clock it that quickly? In the back of my head, I was like, yeah, for sure. But I did find a line from a biography of Tom Cruise in 1998 where the writer said, a large number of homosexuals went to see Top Gun over and over again because they enjoyed certain scenes in the movie. And so I was like, okay, I don't have a time machine to go back, but I'll take that. I can imagine the (laughs) scenes. I wonder what scenes they're talking about. And it was ultimately, like, pretty well received. You know, it had, like, half good reviews, half bad reviews. People thought the soundtrack was really good somehow. I disagree. (laughs) It sticks in your head, I'll tell you that. I like the the Berlin song, the uh, Take My Breath Away. Yeah. Is that in this movie? Yeah. Because I didn't get that far. It's during the sex scene that we won't discuss. <laughs> that actually won an Oscar for best song yeah. that year. Um, so this film was the highest money-making film of the year it came out. With a budget of $15 million, it grossed $386 million in the box office. Jesus. And that's in 19-something-something money. 1986 money. Damn. That's like billion-dollar money. And in fact, I looked up Top Gun Maverick's numbers just to compare. Top Gun Maverick was made for 10 times more money, but it grossed $1.5 billion in the box office. I didn't even know that was possible. Can you imagine the memory of a 37-year-old film being so gay? Like, (laughs) still gets you to the box office. Four decades later, showing up to the box office. Jeez. Oh, man. So with that, I just wanted to assure you with one quick fact before I go. Please. Don't worry. Top Gun is in the Library of Congress, so one day, aliens will find it, and they will know just what we thought. I was literally so worried about that. (laughs) You can sleep well tonight. Nick Cage has got to steal the Top Gun from the 
<laughs> the Library of a Congress. real national treasure. <laughs> oh, I had so much fun watching this movie and breaking it down. This was truly one of my favorite films to dig for subtext because it wasn't that hard. <laughs> Digging for subtext, more like uh, sifting around for loose subtext. In the dark, just putting my hands on subtext all around me. <laughs> oh, man. All right, we got to score this film now. We gotta, we've got to go below the hard deck and score <laughs> this fucker. So, Sam, how does the subtextual score work? How the subtextual score works is we rate the film on a scale of 1 to 10. How gay is it and how good is it? Those scores are averaged and we get an overall subtextual score. Okay, Sam, on a scale of 1 to 10, how good was this movie? I didn't enjoy hardly any of it. I'll give it a 4. I think that's fair. Because if this movie wasn't gay, I would literally never watch it. (laughs) So what do you give it? I also give it a 4. Okay. Okay. Sam, how gay is this movie on a scale of 1 to 10? I am a purist. I rate the gay on gay sex. We didn't get close, but God, I've read so much fanfic. And like this would be, you know, ranked in explicit on AO3. It would be mature. Yeah, but you just like haven't got to the chapter where they actually have sex. Um, I'm going to give it a 7. That's actually pretty high. Yeah. I think... If we had continued with them, we would see them have sex. Yeah. No, definitely. definitely. Um, I think this film was so much gayer than I thought it would be. And it was also quite emotional. Like, are you going to be mad at me if, if I also give it a seven? No. I mean, when we're right, we're right. I just feel like that's dead on. It's like pretty fucking gay. Mm-hmm. That gives us a subtextual score of 5.5. Right below the hard deck. Like, right <laughs> below it. Points don't count if you're <laughs> below the hard deck. So we had to go right, right below, above it. Okay, I want to end with a question. What do you think your military pet name would be if you were a flight person? Dyke. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Meatball sub. That's too many syllables. Nuh-uh. Sub. <laughs> Meatball? Oh man. All right. Go revisit Top Gun. It's on Netflix. Go give Top Gun Mavericks more money so they can reach two billion. Go enter the School of Scientology. Go watch (laughs) all of Mission Impossible. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com/slash subtextualpod. See you next week.